this is Nancy Urell, and welcome to Nancy's Psychic View on the High Road to Humanity. And joining me today is Elizabeth Cunningham. She's written this cool book, My Life as a Prayer. And welcome back to the show, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled to be back. I'm excited you're here. This is cool. We're going to be talking about prayer today. We're going to, this is her memoir. This is, um, you know, a multi-faith memoir, she calls it. And it's really interesting and it's about her life. And um, so, and we're going to talk about prayer too. So it's it's a, going to be a fun show. Before we get going, you know, I pulled this up on my phone this morning. I always kind of just, you know, go through and see what's happening. And I saw this headline and I wanted to bring it to people's attention. Panera Bread faces growing allegations over beverage blamed for deaths. Now, I thought this was quite interesting. So this is the second lawsuit has been filed against Panera Bread. And I'm telling you this um, for informational purposes. A lot of people go out to eat. And they say that this is the second lawsuit filed against Panera, uh, claims Florida men died from a caffeinated charged lemonade. And I didn't know anything about this, but a lawsuit was filed Monday alleging that Panera lemon drink caused the death of a Florida man, Dennis Brown, 46, after he went into cardiac arrest, you guys, when he left the restaurant. According to the lawsuit, Brown Brown consumed a lemonade with his dinner at the Panera Bread near his job in Florida and died while he was walking home. So I'm not going to go into the whole thing. You guys can check it out. But I'm just thinking, what is in this thing? Is it that much caffeine? What do you think about this, Elizabeth? This is kind of crazy, huh? I actually did hear about that a while back, and I didn't realize it was Panera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I heard about that people were drinking a drink that they did not were not aware was that caffeinated. That's all I know about it. Yeah. And there was yeah. a young girl also who who died. Um, and it goes on to say a, she was a student. She was a college student wow. and she went into cardiac arrest. That's too much caffeine. Maybe it's something else too. I don't know. I don't, I'm not really familiar with the details, but I, I'm not either. But I'm just I'm letting people know. Be careful what you put in your body. You know, yeah. just really watch it out there. I'm one of these that um, I cook a lot because I want to know it's in my food. <laughs> you guys, you know, Elizabeth's here and she's a, a novelist and a poet. She's best known for the Maeve Chronicles. And we had her on the show talking about this. And that's a series of award winning novels featuring a Celtic Mary Magdalene, um, the descendant of generations of Episcopal priests. Cunningham grew up in a small upstate New York town next door to her church and an overgrown enchanted wood and has spent her life writing stories, you guys, traversing the world of scripture and fairy tales. I'm just really excited you're here. And I guess my first question is, um, you say in the very beginning of the book, I am a prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, talk about this. Why yeah. write your life is a prayer? Well, that is how the title actually came to me in one of those little whispers that you might recognize as a communication, Nancy. Yes. But I was thinking like, <clears throat> prayer is so vast, really, as a subject. And there are so many approaches to prayer that the ones that, and it's unfathomable in some ways, and I'm not an expert, but the one thing that I do know is that if you pray, like if you're a writer, If you write, you are a writer. If you sing, you are a singer. So if you pray, you are a prayer. I think that's cool. Yeah. I think that's really neat. Now, I want to kind of start out in the beginning because you do tell your story 
throughout the book. First half and tells the story and the second half is a lot of questions, my own questions about prayer and explorations of it in right. essay form. I don't know if you got that far, but so yeah, one part, well, yeah, because I made it to the angel fairy part. <laughs> All right, then you're good. You're in. Oh, yeah. but what I, what I want to start with is this is kind of shocking and it may be shocking to the audience, but at age three, you say you have had it with God and Jesus. Tell your story. Explain what happened. Yeah. And you know, I've never, um, pe people say, well, why did you feel that way at three? So I think we have to start with the fact that my father was an Episcopal priest. I don't think he was terribly comfortable being a father, maybe especially not after we were little. And that's a whole long story. And I refer people to my body of work and all my novels, if you want to know more about that. But I think there was a point at which I felt I've never confessed this on air before. I think where I felt my father turned from me and pushed me away or my father, or maybe I thought my father was so busy with God, he didn't have any time for me. I'm sure it was connected to my father. Yeah. And when I think about my father and God, the father and my childhood, when I think about that, I do see the church I grew up in. And it was a beautiful church and it actually had some nice stained glass windows and was lit up during the day but it looks very dark and cavernous to me and mm -hmm. so there's my father up on the pulpit because they stood up higher than the congregation back in those days it's much more friendly now I think yeah right we're and on the same level <laughs> that and it's like so they were very mysterious to me yeah plus of course as a child of the 19. 50s I guess that would be late 50s I was born in 53 so by the time I was three or four I was watching cartoons probably including Roadrunner yeah it was Wild E. Coyote and yeah, he I was those. <laughs> trying he was always rolling boulders over trying to squash um the who no or someone was trying to squash him anyway there was a boulder and right that right right no you're right it was a and the, and and the as far as I knew, the God lived in the desert from all the stories I had heard. So I thought, well, if I'm going to get God, then I could stand on one of those pinnacles and I could push the boulder over. And so God looked to me like a thundercloud, like that darkness hanging out in the church. And Jesus, um, he kind of floated. And I don't know, I put them together. I didn't have the Holy Ghost. I didn't have the Trinity yet. But I thought <laughs> I'm going to squash them. But they never stayed squashed because, you know, things pop back up. Right. Can oh, I ask you a quick question? I, I'm yeah. just curious about something. Did no one ever, I mean, your father was a priest. I mean, did no one ever sit you down and talk to you about God or Jesus or anything? No, that's the odd thing. Everything I got, I sort of got by osmosis um, because it wasn't, I mean, I got a lot by being in the church and listening sure. to the incredibly beautiful, beautiful, also scary liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer. And I have a whole chapter about that, the kind of language that I heard, which was, you know, really from the, um, it was from the time of King James, pretty much. And it was very beautiful. And I think it had a profound effect on me, but nobody really sat me down and talked to me about anything or taught me. I mean, in Sunday school, they right. did. Right. And uh, but my father, I do not remember my father talking to me about God. I think that that was so in, it was so internal in some sense. I mean, the external form was the liturgy, but internally, you didn't talk about your personal relationship with God. I know in other churches, um, people did, but not, 
not my father, not his father, probably not his father. So it was an odd combination of being completely steeped in the church and in religion and in tradition and yet not having a way to speak about it mm. with my father. Interesting. And your mother, you say, was chronically depressed, you believe? Yes, she, she definitely was. And yeah, you know, it was interesting when you wrote this in the book, you said your mother was constantly serving. She was always cooking. Like, what do you need? And my mom was like that too. I think that was a generational thing. What it was you... very much so, I think. Yeah. Um, like, what well, can I get for you? Yeah. Well, I don't think my mother really liked it. I think she felt like it was, my mother was very big on duty and obligation. She didn't really talk about that either. Right. But she did what she was supposed to do. And I think she had an awful lot of talent. I mean, I think she had a lot of artistic talent that she did not maybe if she was really determined or her life had been different because she had a difficult childhood in some ways maybe if she had pursued it it would have been different but women weren't really encouraged to pursue she went to college and she actually went to graduate school but then and she probably could have fought for her career but she didn't it was like oh now you're married mm. now you're going to raise a family mm. and you're going to um you know, teach Sunday school and do volunteer work. I mean, when I think of the women in my childhood, and a lot of them had a zest for it, they could have been CEOs, a lot of them, but they, right. were, running, they were basically running the church, they were running the town, they were running the school board. They were very talented women who gave um, of their talents to the community because that was the only outlet that they really had in the 50s and early 60s. That all began to change, but that's how it was. Well, it's getting kind of weird lately. I'll just mention that where women are not, I saw something where women are just not sticking up for each other. And I just think it's really cool that you're talking about this and that we're having this conversation. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, yes. And there was a real, um, that is one thing that I think maybe was, I mean, they didn't have a lot of choices, but they did have a lot of sisterhood with each other, but they didn't yeah. talk that way, but they were there for each other. Yeah. I think we've lost a lot of that. Yeah. Um, women have become, I'll just mention this because we're talking about it and I saw a clip on the news not too long ago, but I just feel like, uh, you know, women have been almost uh, put it against each other. You know, the jealousy, um, you know, it's, uh, you don't see the friendship, I think, um, that maybe you saw a long time ago. What do you think about that? Well, I have to say, I feel very lucky. I mean, um, I grew up in that parish, yeah. which um, even though, you know, I had my issues with my father, it was interesting to grow up in a parish. I saw my mother have friendships with women and I've always had friendships with women. Mm -hmm. And I also came of age when women were really trying to tell their stories to each other and break isolation and sisterhood is powerful. And that's been my experience. I think that if you're in the really fierce competitive corporate world where the rules yeah. are more defined by men probably yeah and you've got ceilings and um you've got to be twice as good as whoever you're up against I I'm sure that's had an effect you're right you're right I didn't I, have to live in yeah. I was lucky not to have to live in that world and yeah. the, the jobs that I've had and the career that I've chosen there's been a lot of sisterhood that I um treasure yeah and I hope that all women have that because and if you don't seek it find a way to find it because That's cool. Yeah. You know, I have more um, camaraderie with the spiritual people that I work with now, but being in the real estate industry as a broker for many years, 
Um, it was just really uh, it it got really difficult. Anyway, so probably ruthless <laughs> and cutthroat, right? Very much so. Very yeah. much. So. That's so what it, I, I have. Yeah, I know people in real estate and it's like, whoa, you're brave. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, a- yeah. And it gets, I don't, it gets to you after a while. After a while, it's yeah. like, you know, it, it's, uh, I'm glad I'm doing this type of work now. But you do what you have to do at that at the time right. in order to take care of your family. And that's exactly what I was doing. I was a single mom. And, you know, yeah. sometimes you have to just say, okay, I'll do what I got to do. You know, women um, did have to do that after the or 50s and early 60s when when the, it was a not you could live on one salary or some people could a lot more people that now you can't anymore right it's easily without women in the workforce yeah no it's true you know I wrote down you told your mom you wanted to write a novel yes. and she answered I believe you will and so she had she was a she was rooting for you she was and um yeah so I really had there was a I'm, you know, my parents' marriage, I don't know how much I write about it, maybe a little bit. It was not easy, but I had my father telling me I could not and must not write. And I had my mother saying, oh. you can, you can. That and was a she good influence, thought, yeah. She thought, and she would tell me, oh, your father, I mean, she would not acknowledge her own gifts. And she said, oh, your father's so, you're like your father because, you know, she saw him as verbal and able and she saw herself as not and it's like yeah but she was the one who read the stories and when I had a migraine headache she would make up stories for me about my um stuffed animals just okay. you know A.A. Milne had nothing on my mother she was really good so but she <laughs> oh didn't my own gifts she didn't own them you know she she didn't claim them I love it well now yeah. your dad he his original intent was to pursue uh, graduate studies in English literature. Yeah, yeah. I, I think. Won't. Do you think he kind of, you know, looked at you in a way because he didn't get to pursue his dreams? Do you think that had anything to do? I with do, that? and yeah. I think that's probably true. That may have been true. I mean, in my father's lineage, it was all about direct service, right. and so anything that to do with the arts was frippery or indulgence. Like his father wrote. Um, his father wrote light verse and his father also did some painting, but his father didn't encourage my father to do anything of the sort because they had to just, they had to be servants and they had to feed the hungry and, it, and which was laudable. Um, my grandfather's plaque says I was naked and he clothed me. I was hungry and you gave me to eat. That was their creed. That was what they lived by. Mm -hmm. And they lived, they lived the social justice gospel. And that is very admirable. But what wasn't so great was that they didn't see any other way or acknowledge any other gifts. They were so tunnel vision. Yeah, they were very tunnel vision. Yeah. That's and accomplished great things. But there, there wasn't much room for uh, other ways. Right, right. Well, you had quite, I was, <laughs> I was shocked to read some of your stuff in here about you. You went to school in Vermont. You were supposed to go, from what I understand, you were supposed to go to a certain school and then you had an accident. Do you want to tell the story? Oh, well, no, I did. I did have a, I, I fell out of a tree just before I went to that school, but I did go to that. Did school. you go to that school? Okay. Yes, and, I did. And I got kicked out of it and it was a progressive school. So that was. I know you got kicked out. What did you do? I. Well, I think there's this story that I included that I didn't want to include, but my publisher wanted me to include about a very traumatic incident that happened that I think 
I shifted from being this real good kid. I couldn't help it. I didn't want to be a good kid, but I was a good kid and I was good in school. And then there came this point where I just thought, well, I don't have to be good. I don't have to do what anybody says. I don't have to be at the top of my class. I don't have to be the most responsible person. I don't have How to over you. I was about 15 at that time. Yeah. But that was partly, and I'm sort of glad they did make me include the traumatic story because it explains it a little more than just, it was simple rebellion. It was sort of like, you might call it soul loss almost. Yeah. You got kicked out. Yeah. Well, no, wait, I want to understand. Is that, that was after you went to London or was that before you went to London? Well, after I went to London was when I, and had the traumatic incident, I got kicked out of that progressive school. Oh, and then you may be thinking of that other school that my father wanted to send me to. Yes. Which was yes. Horror. It was a horror. <laughs> and, and, you know, the guy kind of had a, I think he, he was rather abusive, but he saw himself as a savior. And so he's the one who said, oh, you have to give up everything and follow me. And it's like, uh, no, you're not Jesus. No. <laughs> and so you told your dad you weren't going to go to that school. I did. And they never believed how bad it was or he didn't. But I just didn't call. I refused okay. to go. And, no, my, I and probably because of my mother, they didn't make. They me. didn't make you. I, I, do you want to share what happened with uh, the audience so they can understand what we're Okay, so yeah, so my mother, I was sent to a little progressive school, and it and it had it's probably clearer in the book, but I I went away for a um a term off, and I was um nearly abducted, I was abducted and nearly raped, and I was only returned I think because the person who abducted me decided I must be a nut job because when I was in London I decided to pretend I was Eliza Doolittle. So I went into character and I started speaking with a Cockney accent and I made up a lot of stories. And this guy, I think, finally figured out I was probably nuts and then and not safe because I um, I finally must have said something about I have to meet my uncle back at the mobile oil office because my uncle was uh, working for them. So he returned me. But that was a very scary thing. It was something that I never felt I could tell an adult. And I didn't. You were um, what, 15 or 16? I was 15, 15. So you and go, so I, and I just want to kind of kind of preface yeah. this a little bit so the audience understands. You were, you got to go over to um, England yeah. to visit. And you went and your uncle- or My was uncle like, was working at yeah. the time. And your yeah. uncle, and, and I'm just curious, this is the part where I was like, I want to know what you, your thoughts are. Why did he just let you go on your own in, I have in London? No, I have no idea. Okay. That was the part that I was like, she's 15 or 16 years old. She's, he just says, he just left you and said, go have a good day. He, and I'll see you back here. Yeah, he was working. Um, They lived in a little suburb and he was working. And my aunt was in the hospital at the time having a sinus operation. Okay. He didn't know what to do with me. He just thought, well, I'll go to work. I'll give her a map. She can go see, you know, Buckingham Palace and the changing of the guards and, you know, be a tourist. I don't think he realized. Maybe he wasn't imaginative enough to realize how naive I was. Right. That I had never been alone in a city in my life. I mean, if I ever went to New York, I was with my mother. I mean, I was a very I grew up in a little small town and went to a little hippy dippy school I'd never been alone in a city. I didn't know anything. 
You didn't and know so, not to trust people. And then you I sat down next to this guy and just started talking. He started talking to you. Yep. And I, and I pretended I was Eliza Doolittle, you know, and I, and I made up story and I got in character and I couldn't get out. And he and said, then, and he said, come to my house. And you said, okay, why did you go with him? Did you think I didn't, I didn't know how to break character? It's a good thing I became a novelist because that's how you get in a lot less trouble that way. But I was a kid. I was a very imaginative, naive kid. And you just and I went. Didn't know how to break character. And I had no idea he was going to take me on the underground and take me an hour away from the center of the city. And I was like, I think this is true with people. Maybe not people aren't that naive anymore, but I think that... Um, when you don't have language for what's happening, as verbal as I was, I did not have language for what was happening to me. I didn't know what to do. And then, of course, he got me extremely drunk. You know, in a way, what happened to me isn't that different from kids who, you know, they run away. They end up in the bus station. They don't know what they're doing. They're lost. They're mm -hmm. afraid. They're very easy to take advantage of. And that does still go on. Yeah. And they I... And I'm glad you put it in the book. And I agree with your editor or your publisher, because, you know, I read that and it just, you know, I think what really got me and, and I quote you here, you say, no adult ever asked you what happened to you. No, they didn't. Which so when you got back, I mean, so did you get back late? Did you get back early? I, I got back probably, I don't know what I was drunk. He dropped me off at the mobile oil offices. I guess I had said enough about it that he could figure out where to take you and get me there. And my uncle's just sitting there and he didn't ask me a thing. Like, I think they speculated. I read, read a letter that my aunt wrote to my yeah. mother and said, I, you know, I think she's fey, meaning I think she's nuts. I mean, they thought I was really nuts, but they didn't know what to do with me. Well, I guess my parents sent me to a psychiatrist later on, but yeah. nobody knew what to do with me. I didn't know what to do with me, but somebody did know what to do with me because in the next chapter, I went and um, to the school that my brother went to for kids that had various special, what we call special ed needs. And I worked there and my the woman who turned into my mother-in-law was great with me. She's like, oh, we'll just find her something to do. We'll accept her as she is. She didn't even use those words, but that's what she did. That's what she, she did. Well, you were highly intelligent and they didn't yeah. know what to do with you. Well, at my mother-in-law's school, she didn't worry about that. It's like, oh, go help that kid with his reading. Or we're going to do be thinning the stand of trees. You're going to go with the kids. And, you know, she didn't even mm -hmm. use words. She just put me to work and didn't worry about fixing me or reforming me she just said oh here's another kid who's in trouble and we can put you know she will find something for her to do yeah let you be you let yep, you be exactly you. That's, that's what really she cool. did and that was very very healing so it's not that she knew what to do with me but she just didn't trouble herself about oh she didn't think anything had she to didn't be done. look she didn't look at you like you needed to be fixed or something was exactly. wrong with you exactly and that was a great um even though, as I know in the book, she she was the most a-religious person I ever met. For me, there's a deep spiritual lesson in that, in the kind of radical acceptance she had of the situation as it was, and yeah. and not pathologizing me, just saying, "Oh well, let's see what she's good at." Oh, okay, let's have her work with this kid. Mm -hmm. She Very just cool. 
It was very cool. And there yeah. were other, there was another woman, Miss Sang, who was a parishioner of my father's, who, who really not introduced me in any formal self-conscious sense, but embodied the mystical tradition of Christianity. She just was that. And it's like, oh, that exists. Mm-hmm. You talk about Olga and Miss Sang, two women. Yep. And those two women who came into my life when I was 16, they gave me the space to, to heal, really. Wow. That's incredible. Nell, yeah. did you ever tell the story of what happened to anybody before this? You would have had to have told your husband. Yeah, I think I probably told friends and. But not uh, a lot. Not, I didn't tell, um, I did not tell. Like your mother, I, your I mom never, never knew. Um, no. And I did write a, I did sort of use that story as the premise for um, a novel that I hope is coming out in the next year or so. It's being reissued called All the Perils of This Night. And the premise was of that, of that novel is, well, what if I hadn't been returned? What if I did that crazy thing of pretending to be Eliza Doolittle and I hadn't been returned? And so that's the basis of the novel. And really looking a lot at, uh, at how young women and not just women, boys men too. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of craziness. Well, there's a lot of human trafficking, of course, that going on right now. And, you know, people are aware. I would like to say that we could do as much as we can about it, but it's hard. Um, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. I think we don't know about There is. Yeah. And I wanted to ask really quickly, did your, you never mentioned it to your mom? No, no, no. I mean, I think I mentioned that. I think I, I think I said in the book that horrible man who thought he was Jesus, who thought I should sacrifice my will and follow him, to, had got extracted things from me, not the details, but that I had experiences that I, with drugs and sex, in his mind, drugs and sex. It's like, really? Not really. But he exaggerated it and said it to my parents, but they didn't ever. Yeah. He, he He's like, yeah, she's involved with drugs and sex. It's like, no, she's really very innocent. <laughs> uh, yes, I saw that. Yes. And he told them yeah. everything. Yes, that's sad. I yeah. want to get into um, the part of your life when you were a Quaker. You were a Quaker for 15 years. And, yeah. you know, we can't go through the entire book, but I want to hit on some well, people of could advice. get it and read it. Yes. Yeah, get it and read it because it's really interesting. Um, yeah. My life as a prayer. It's really, really good, you guys. And it's by Elizabeth Cunningham. I want to just talk about this because you went to a meeting mm-hmm. and tell the audience what happened, if you don't mind. Like how you, the very first meeting I went to that was yeah, really like how you became a Quaker. Well, um, I became, I, oh, well, yeah, part, I tried to stay in Anglican when I moved down to Florida to be with my husband, but um, that didn't go well. And so I thought, well, what when, but I wanted to be part of a community I always has had been and my I had Quaker Quakers on my mother's side so I looked up a Quaker meeting and it was a little tiny meeting just in some little room somewhere and what I loved about Quakers and love about Quakers is that here I was sitting in pews looking up there but Quakers are sitting in a circle looking at each other so it says something about where the spirit is where God is how we perceive that But it was a very funny first meeting, as I write about it in the book. There was an elderly man who quoted in Greek, you know, Quakers are allowed to, I mean, Quakers are um, 
expected and encouraged to wait on the spirit. And if there's a message, anyone can bring the message through. So yeah. apparently every week, this elderly gentleman felt that the spirit wanted him to quote Aeschylus in Greek. Okay. He was British. So he, he would say, I was reading Aeschylus at dawn. And then he would, you know, burst forth in Greek. And there was this little, little um old Southern lady who was a poet, very good poet. And she says, I like the translation. But he was also deaf, so he never heard He never but heard her. <laughs> I think what I loved about that, I mean, that was a very eccentric meeting. I went on to be part of, you know, more established, bigger meetings when I moved back to the Northeast. But what I loved was that everybody was just there. They were present and that they were sharing the silence and they were sharing the belief that we are all connected. Yeah, I wrote this down. This really got me in your book. Um, well, first you said, everyone quotes Matthew 25, there is that of God in everyone. And I agree with this. And if you could connect with that part of a person, you had the chance to transform the most volatile situations. And it really made me think about all the war and everything we're having. Yeah. And then you talk about when you got married, how you went into the Episcopal church and you had him turn the pews facing each other. And I want you to address this because out of your book, this really, really hit me because we mm -hmm. all have that little piece of God within us. And if we can see that little bit of God, that's what you said. If you can connect with that yeah. part of a person, you have the channel to transform most volatile situations. So Matthew 25 is about in the Bible is about how Jesus is. We see Jesus in the least of these. You remember that passage where Jesus says, I was naked and you clothed me. Right. And as much as you have done it unto these, the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. So I think that is the origin of the, maybe one of the origins of the Quaker belief there is that of God. And it's pretty tough to, I mean, when you really think about if you believe that, whether you're a Christian or not, if you believe there's that of God in everyone, then you can't go around dismissing people and making them other because there is that of God or that if you are doing that, you are also doing that to God and you're doing that to Jesus if you're a Christian. Mm -hmm. So that was a very, very core tenet of Quaker belief and practice. So the workshops that I learned to, that I participated in in prison, um, that was at the core of that was that we we would do the we would set up these scenarios where people practiced instead of having their knee jerk reaction or their um, automatic fight or flight reaction they would find another reaction that would transform the situation that's what they called it transforming power I love it and um, and the Quakers have have something that they've uh, created practices called creative response to conflict. And um, it's gone beyond Quakers. But yeah, we sure need that today because we're very quick to see the other as other and evil and threatening. Mm -hmm. And Quakers and Christians, really, if they looked at that passage in Matthew 25, are encouraged to see the other as the vessel of the divine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if you look at somebody with hate, then you're hating God because they have a piece of God inside of them. That's right. But if you yeah. change your view and change your, it's changing your energy and changing your view and changing yeah. how you look at things, you know, more than anything. Changing your energy and yeah. changing the dynamic. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about the war going on over um, with Israel and Hamas and the Palestinians right now. And it's such a horrible situation. I bring it up because we're talking about this little bit of God in all of us, you know, and it's it's really a tough situation. Um, you have to defend yourself. But then on the flip side, you've got a lot of innocent women and children and men who are being killed in the process. And I don't have all the answers, but if we they could change their view, maybe. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's it's a tough one. You have to protect yourself. So and I, I found myself the other day when and during this, I found myself um praying for Jesus. Because think of how 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 tragic that is for this for the one we call Jesus who walked on that land and who knew the conflicts that existed then. Yeah. To see it to see what's yeah. going on right now. Now, do you believe, just since we're talking about it, do you believe that this is prophecy being fulfilled? I don't, I, I don't think I'm very qualified to speak to that. I, I don't, I think that where I am right now is willing to be with the unknown. Hmm. I'm willing not to know, and I'm willing to, um, I think that there's I think there's a real danger in certainty and interpretation mm -hmm. on the part of human beings. One mm -hmm. of my characters once said, um, prophecy loses in the translation. That we're well, trans yeah. all the time. We're yeah. trans so to say with any certainty what is happening and why it's happening, I think is a little presumptuous if we believe in God or in the mystery. Because you never know what he's got. We don't. We really don't Land, know. Right, right. And, and I think when we try to interpret too much, we're trying to control something, understandably, because we feel like it's out of control. It's scary. It's scary to be out of control. So let me interpret this. Let me, you know, let me try to get a handle on it. Well, yeah. Well, that's very human, but I don't think it's helpful. I bring, yeah. And I'll just bring up Nostradamus. And I've had um, a gentleman who um, would come on the show for a little while and he talked about it. But I, he and I just differed so much. It To me, it felt dark. I know that sounds odd, but to me, it just the messages felt dark and hmm. I couldn't, I feel more of a light. I feel like things will work out. In fact, I know they will. And there will be changes and changes. Yeah. Forever, you know what I mean? So it's, I agree with you. I like what you said about that. That's yeah. Uh, yeah. Talk more about being a Quaker. How did that change you? as a person well i think that it um the one of the big changes that led to many other changes was that i had grown up reciting a creed and reciting the same words over and over and over again every week mm -hmm. and they were very fit they're beautiful words but very set very fixed so in the silence it's like other things had a chance to emerge and so one of the things that emerged for me which we talked about last time was conceiving of God as feminine as well as masculine mm -hmm. and actually some of the Quakers didn't really understand what I was on about when that happened to me because for them God didn't have gender but for mm -hmm. me God growing up God the father God the son God had been so gendered that I needed some room for another image of the divine to come right, right. and I think I've probably gone on to where it's like wait I don't need God to be human anymore i mean i don't need to just see god in a, as a human figure anymore 
Although I real that's why I wrote the Maeve Chronicles part loose because I wanted to see God as not just as something other than human or more than human, but I wanted to see the goddess as human. So I gave Jesus a little friend. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. I think but, there's yeah. A, yeah, I think there's a male and a female. I've always felt that way. You know, I felt that way. I can remember going into a unity church in um, New Mexico, actually, and hearing them talk, pray to mother God and father God. And realizing, and this was probably 20 years ago, but realizing then that there was the female aspect, you know, and everybody does what they do. But when I journal, I write to God and Gaia, the goddess. At the yeah, same time. That's yeah. Beautiful. yeah, because I, I, I like you, I think there is both and, um, and somehow that got all twisted. <laughs> yeah, or suppressed. Yeah, it's interesting. Julian of Norwich, I've just been reading a novel that I wrote a blurb for by a woman named Kristen Holt Brown. It's called Ordinary Devotion, but she evokes Julian of Norwich in it because it's about anchoresses. And Julian of Norwich, who wrote Divine Love, Revelations of Divine Love, talked about Jesus, our mother. And I love that image of Jesus as someone who can nurture. Yeah. As well as confront, well, fall out. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell you, well, I don't know. I think a lot of people feel this way. You know, when I was going through a really tough time, I was outside and I feel, I felt Jesus's presence and I knew he was with me because I was so distraught and I won't get into it, but I knew that Jesus was with me. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of people today that are saying, oh, Jesus was just a myth or Jesus isn't real. It was just a story. But no, I want to say that definitely it's a energy an entity a loving energy that comforted me when i needed comforting have you ever experienced that oh yourself? yes i don't know if you got to that chapter but yeah talk about it talk about that. well i feel like well when i talk about jesus and my experience of jesus i'm not talking about a theology or a creed or any belief that anybody else has to have but i i feel there's certain times of night when i wake up and i feel like I'm in the presence. And sometimes it takes his form. Sometimes it's just the presence. But I remember I have these conversations and I said to him, look, I don't know why you're here with me. I mean, there's so many other problems in the world. There's so many other people that are suffering. I mean, there's wars here, there's starving. And he, what he said to me was, I, I am the heart of the heart. That's where I live. So you never have to worry that if I'm with you, I'm not with someone else because I am the heart of the heart. Sometimes a heart locks me out. Sometimes a heart locks me in, but I live in the heart. So I can always be with you. Mm -hmm. Just like our loved ones. Yeah. Who have yeah. passed. We always have that love in our heart. And Jesus told you that and that's what he is to me he's the heart of the heart like i've got a heart but he's the heart of the heart, the heart of that's, the heart. Who, how that's comforting. how comforting him and to me it's like that doesn't mean that i have to be a creed saying um i don't have to say the creed i don't have to believe this or that i don't have to insist that anybody else believe what i believe but i know like you said i know what i know in terms of that i have that it's real mm -hmm. i Whatever. think that's yeah, it's real. It's real. And that's the biggest thing. And I really, I want, I'm so glad we're talking about this. Yeah.
Because I think people are trying to get get rid of Jesus and get rid of God, and I we got to bring him back. Or they're trying to put him in a box and saying he's you know you the way you understand him, or if you don't understand him, then you're somehow outcast. And to me, that is simply not true. Or to act like he didn't exist, that he was just a a, a fairy tale or or a story. Speaking of fairies, is it the, oh, I just want to do a C.S. Lewis number here because I grew up on C.S. Lewis, and who okay, was, who all right, who was a Christian convert but one of the things that i always loved and appreciated about him is that he had people in his stories that were of another religion and his actually his views were a little racist but he did have one of the people that other people considered en enemies seeking you know the god that he believed in and then he was welcomed and accepted by aslan who is jesus and it's like well why would you accept me and it goes back to Matthew 25. Well, you were you you were kind, you helped people, you did you were honest, you were truthful. So all of the that you are is accounted onto whatever we think God is. So mm -hmm. even if someone doesn't believe in Jesus, even if they're an atheist, if they are that kind of a person, God knows. Sure, He knows every one of us. Yep. And and that that yeah christians don't god knows they don't own righteousness <laughs> and when jesus was tough on people he tended to be tough on the self-righteous yeah he was i mean i always think about him throwing the money in the in the yeah and oh he when he went on a rant he'd say oh you whited self sepulchers you hypocrites i mean he he the people yeah. that he asked were the people who thought they were so good and they were so righteous and everybody admired them and God liked them best. No, Jesus had very little tolerance for that. Mm -hmm. And he would also embrace people that were outside of his own religion. Mm -hmm. That's what the story of the Good Samaritan is about. The Samaritans were the enemies at the time. Mm -hmm. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I love it. I'm so glad you came on to talk about this today. Let's, um, we only have a few more minutes uh, before we get, we need to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> we could talk for a long time. You know, um, there are two parts to the book. Part two is a way out of no way. Um, within that, you do talk about the angels, the fairies, and the divas, yes. and you ask for their help. Um, I wonder if you tell the story, maybe you could leave us with this, that when you were in the woods and they cleared a path for you. I wonder if you yeah. Okay. Well, I think that I do every day I say thank you to them. Um, yes, I, I had a friend who said, here's, you know, you should read this book about angels. She said, they're there, they want to help, but you have to ask. So I thought, well, maybe I should ask. So I started asking. And I think what I realized, and I consider them to be angels, but I think the way they would work is they would shift my perception. Like on my own, I'd be like, where is, like, I started by asking for things that I had lost. Where is, you know how frantic oh, we get sorry. and we pull the house apart. So I just but asked for help here. and then... I'm and I've become, they'd calm me and they direct energy. my gaze. Okay. And sometimes it doesn't happen okay. right away and it's I okay. I can be patient. <laughs> Thank you. But that was it. When I was in the woods, I was in a well, thicket. There was water, there was swamp really on one side, a so steep excited. hill on the other and briars her. everywhere. And I, I wanted to walk there because I wanted to be near the stream, but I was not in it. I mean, I could have turned around and gone back. So I wasn't like I was lost. Okay, let's see them. Let's see them. I wonder Let's if see. I just wait and ask now, for do help. Do I need to reshare? If they'll good. give it to you. We're probably they can good. show me the way, just I the way they show me good. where my keys are. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I just stood there down. and my perception shifted. 
I'll and I said, oh, some I could take two did. steps in that direction. Okay. So I'd go take the two I did steps some, and then I'd I did wait. one on grief. And I'd say, okay, I'm and waiting. I did, this is during, and then I see another you know, two the steps. And for me, that's oh, sort well, of like, yeah, that's how they, know, for me, that's how they work. But it's also maybe what we need to learn to do at this time is to not... Yes. Think that we know yes, everything, you control everything. To be willing to say, I, I need help. I need to see a way. Oh, I'm going to stand daughter. here and you be patient and be still. Your, be still and know um, that I'm God. You know that phrase on, from on the what Bible. you posted your mm -hmm. news. So yes, I think I what the angels with me and has taught me yeah. is to yeah. be still yeah. and to trust. If there's a new and to, and way will open. Healing and I forget all the time. When I remember no, people have you're absolutely true. You know, um, yes. I relaunched my book, Due Wake Up the Universe is Speaking to You. And in here, I tell the story. I got into Detroit Airport real late one night. A lot of people myself um i was uh, on i-75 and there news, was construction and, and it, it out there raining. because and I got myself all for well round and I was freaked out and I just stopped and I and said all right you guys me, I need your tell help the audience. Right now and it's like you, know, you said Nancy, and I write about this because all of a sudden I saw hijacking eight and a half years ago and she was badly damaged that's why she left and I did and I got out and I made it but yeah, a lot of times um, we just, you know, we forget to when ask. When she was hijacked, she we got out when they were trying to help We forget to ask. And, and, and the same and thing they goes were when you're talking about finding And the guy items. hit her on her left ear. Like, ask my angel. And she went down and hit her into the street. And she hurt the back of her head. And she's got nerves that are severed. So she's definitely left ear and nerves are severed. And she can't smell of taste. It's very big injuries. you know, like and that's you eight said, years you ago. Out, you were by yourself. So you're in the woods. It's horrible you don't know to know lose two and a half senses. You know, like show me the way. And when you came on and said, "There's this new." It, it does feel it about, is, and it is, and heal. I wish that as a collective, well, probably heal. I wish as humanity we would say pause sometimes because and say, it's you know new. What? This situation um, is a mess. Of I don't and taste. know which way to go. And, Instead of thinking I mean, we do, I think it's if we wonderful. Just wait, we might that it came it, might from open, you all the way from in USA to conflicts. South Africa it to might. me. Yeah, so I like how you talk so much. And I want to mention this really quickly. How the Quakers fight their minds. Did you tell her? Did you tell me? I feel like really helped you. I haven't spoken to her because she was away. I did write a message. I will be speaking to her on Wednesday. That message things differently. you can also. So good just speaking of, no you're welcome but that, you can oh, i think it's you know, cool that, oh, that the answer this is helping somebody across the world for. it really makes me feel mm -hmm. good yes that right. information you is getting out there yeah. well. yeah. and okay. i just i think it's do you want to leave us i think it, 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 it is healing and it has proven that it works and i like this phrase i really do which is a quaker phrase i honestly do i feel good about that's what we've just been but this is what yeah so so during the covid this is what i like and the other phrase a way out of no yes, way. this Come was the represented the cells of the love. body. Okay, um, and so I guess I would people I, I guess COVID. I'm trying to learn and relearn. And then I did another one. Trust that there we go. Will, that More life open. and energy oh. and, back. <laughs> and that These I don't have healthy to know cells. <laughs> this is what we want. Yeah. So it takes faith. there it you go. Different. There you go. And it's faith, and then like that I one say, is spreading love in, across the planet. Religion or also, creed the colors don't come across so nicely. They're very yeah. vibrant in when the, you in actually the universal see them. powers that be. But they don't yeah. sort of 
um, yeah, and I it know. come across and really practice. well when it's one takes a, a picture. A but that's it's just bringing love, divine love, unconditional that, you know, love have, to the planet at that time. God. And uh, then this one I did for relationship, not at that time before. And that was a soulmate that I attracted, which was to we were together with long distance for three years, but then it couldn't work. He wasn't quite ready. So my but he was a soulmate because right from the very it's second really I met him, what I knew, you had, and um, oh, and he knew, you, and it was unexpected. Nobody arranged the meeting; it was random. And this is how, when you meet your soulmate, because I also done soulmate workshops. This is how, when we meet a soulmate, it just happens, and you know, you absolutely know. You don't have to try and push it and grab it and bring this relationship towards you. You've got to put it out. But um, sometimes people put too much energy on looking too hard. So I experienced that, which is very special. And then on my last one, I did for my turkey holiday. And that we went on in July. It was a family holiday, a dream. I had it for 10 years. And as my little grandson would say, um, Gran, your dream came true. Your dream came true. <laughs> was to be in Turkey with the whole family. It was so special. I can't tell you how special it was. And hot air ballooning over Cappadocia. Oh wow. Oh like our this is like our Thanksgiving. It's very similar. Yeah. It's very special. It. I love it. That's awesome. The most magical thing I experienced in my life was that hot air balloon. Sorry, my hair's coming down. Oh no, <laughs> you're fine. Down. You're fine. So had you it's not so you got to go up in the hot air balloon? Very special, the whole family. And uh, my son said, Mom, it was far more um, exciting than I ever thought it would be, even the way you described it. You said it was far better. There's no words for it. I love it. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we have the hot air balloon fiesta in Albuquerque. And um, I've done it. And it's it's wonderful when you're up there because it's so quiet. What do you think? Yes, it is. When it's you're up in the quiet. air, it's so quiet. You can just, it's just, it's peaceful, isn't it? Yes, very it's peaceful. peaceful. Very peaceful. Yeah. And I the thing is, it was over the fairy chimneys, and that's what made it so special. Oh. The fairy chimneys, that was the most special thing. Oh, my God. Pointed, pointed chimneys all over. Wow. And this is in South Africa. No, no, Turkey, Cappadocia. In Turkey, in Turkey. And you go at sunrise, so you've got the sun on the one side, and you know how blessed we were. We had the moon on the other side. Okay. We had the sun and the moon at sunrise. <laughs> it was amazing. And all oh these, God. we're about 100 colored air balloons, hot air balloons in the sky at the same, at the same time. time. Yeah, yeah. So oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Dale, if people want to find you, how do they get in touch with you? I mean, could you, if they want to do a workshop with you, can they do it by Zoom or do they have to be in South Africa or is there somewhere here? Talk to us about your, your information. I haven't actually, to be honest, um, Nancy, I haven't actually organized anything to do on Zoom. Okay. I probably would have to. Right. Um, they could always contact me if they need questions via my email, which I think I've given to you. Okay. And should I put your email in the notes? Yes. It's D-A-L-E-R at telcomsa.net. 
Okay, yeah. So they can email me if they want to know more or anything like that. And, you know, I can work on planning something. Wouldn't that be fun? Yes, it would be. It would be great. I would take it. If you do it, I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take your class. You? Okay, that's great. Well, I yeah. think it's great. Well, because you have motivated us to get out there and to get the mandala and to color because color and and I find just the the um act of coloring is so calming to the to it the is. body to it, the soul it, it really is I I think that's why adult coloring books have become so popular um yes. today because I think that people just it's it's a relaxing thing to do but with the color and the mandala having meaning I mean what a magnificent way to heal yourself and when you write down as you're doing it, with the writing, it's more powerful because it's, you know, when you write something and do something, it's more powerful than just speaking. So I find that's important. And the thing is, one can sit on a weekend, on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, and the whole family can sit around the table and do one. It's yeah. something you can do together. Okay. All right. Cool. Which I think is lovely. How okay. often do people do something different together? Well, and that's what we need to do more of. We need to bring yeah. community together and bring people yeah. together. Well, Dale, I'm thrilled that you came on today. Is there anything that you want to leave us with? What do you want to tell us before we get out of here? I don't know if there's time for a short butterfly meditation. Oh, let's do it. Yes, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. I, I've written up a lot of different uh, meditations for different things. Okay, let's and do this it. It's a very short one and it relates to the color and things. Okay. So okay. I'm in. Visualization is extremely important for creating and manifesting. Yes. And I do this on all my workshops, Nancy. Okay. I've been doing it since I was a little child. I visualize very easily, but some people find it challenging and they need to practice it. So now today, I'd like us to get a feeling of butterfly wings in this meditation. So if you can just close your eyes gently. It's easier to, to do this with the eyes closed. Okay. And now focus your attention to the place on your back where you would imagine having butterfly wings. You can move your shoulders a little bit and get a feeling of butterfly wings. And just imagine feeling what the size of your wings are like. Are they small wings, medium ones, or are they very large wings? Just get a feel for the size of the wings. And then get a feel for how easily they move. Do they feel loose or tight? Are they jammed somewhere? Do you perhaps need to they need to be eased up gently for easier movement, or they need some really firm work to release them. Are they too eager to just flap and fly away at the first sign of something different, fearing the unknown? Or are they ready to rest a while and experience something new? Get a feel for what colors they are. Are they one color or do they have many colors? Are they red with anger or passion? Are they orange with bliss? 
perhaps they sunshine yellow filled with happiness or maybe yellow with fear. Perhaps they're pink and filled with unconditional love. Maybe they're green, filled with harmony or perhaps envy. Pale blue, peaceful wings are great. Or maybe they're afraid of communicating. Are they dark blue and wise? Perhaps violet for inspiration and transmuting negativity. They could also be rainbow colored. Perhaps they feel black with anger and hidden desires or just pure white. Mm -hmm. No matter what color your wings are, we are all unique and beautiful butterflies. Breathe in peace and love into your heart center. Feel it warmly expand and fill your whole body. Draw it into every cell of your body. Breathe in love again into your heart center and feel it flow throughout your entire body. Just allow the feeling of unconditional love to flow for another few moments. And then gently open your eyes to the present moment on the next out breath that feels good. I love it. I did it with my angel wings. Oh, goody. That's also good. <laughs> I know. I was thinking. I did. It yes. was really good. Thank you. God bless. That was good really job. cool. You made it's my day today, Dale. Uh, thank you. And I thank you. you for asking me to come on your show. Oh, yeah. I think, yes. Everybody benefits yeah. so much. You're such a knowledgeable yes. lady. And we're so blessed to have you here to help us. Thank you, Nancy. And, yeah. Thanks for helping. You really helped me. And I know you helped the audience. You guys, we got to get out of here for today. I want to mention that I'm going to be in Florida in March, you guys, the 16th and the 17th. I will be at the Life uh, Conscious Expo. I will be talking about angels and I'm going to be doing my own workshop in LA. You guys will come see me, I hope, in February. It'll be Saturday the 10th. I'll be at the, the Conscious Life Expo and that'll be at LAX. And I'm going to do a 90 minute workshop and I'm going to help everybody connect with their angels. So I'm really excited about that. And you guys check out my book. I just relaunched it. Wake up. The universe is speaking to you. Um, Dale, wow. yeah, thanks again. We're going to get out of here for today, but I hope everybody thanks. has a fabulous holiday and continue on this week. Bye, bye, bye. Okay. Bye, <laughs> bye gifts for everybody. Bye. Bye. Take care and God bless. Thanks. You too.